You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 128, Fort Independence. Last week, I talked about the many skirmishes and small battles known collectively as the Forage War in New Jersey in the months following the Battle of Princeton. At the same time those battles were raging, George Washington also attempted to pressure British forces in New York. He wanted to open up a second front against New York City, attacking from the north. Doing so might force General Howe to withdraw all of his soldiers from New Jersey to ensure that he could protect New York from a land attack. It was an interesting strategy. Unfortunately, Washington definitely used his B-team to lead the effort. To command the operation, General Washington chose General William Heath. You may remember General Heath from back in episode 55, when, as a general in the Massachusetts militia, he allegedly gave orders not to deliver the final blow to the retreating British column as they returned from Concord. The Continental Congress selected Heath as one of the first group of brigadier generals commissioned for the new Continental Army. Heath played an important command role in the occupation of Dorchester Heights near Boston, thus forcing the British evacuation in March 1776. Pleased with his work, Congress promoted him to Major General in August of 1776, along with Joseph Spencer, John Sullivan, and Nathaniel Green, just as the British began their invasion of New York. Heath led several commands during the American losses in New York and apparently did not particularly distinguish himself there. As the Continental Army retreated across New Jersey, Washington deployed Heath to a garrison further up the Hudson River at Peekskill, New York. From that command, Heath found himself arguing with more senior generals like Charles Lee and Horatio Gates before receiving orders from Washington to move most of his army down into New Jersey. General Lee had attempted to force Heath to give him some of the best regiments under his command. To his credit, Heath resisted, saying that he had orders from Washington to keep his troops in New York. Lee tried to countermand those orders, saying Washington was not on the scene and did not foresee Lee's need for the troops when he issued those earlier orders. Eventually, though, Lee backed down and let Heath keep his soldiers. A few days later, Washington ordered Heath to bring his army into New Jersey. Washington, you may recall at this time, was trying to consolidate all of his armies so they could make a stand against Cornwallis's advance across New Jersey. Lee, again at this time, requested that Heath join up with his army, but then begged off and said he didn't need them after all. But rather than let Heath obey Washington's orders, Lee once again tried to counterman Washington and told Heath to move his army back north to defend New England. A few days later, the British captured General Lee, and Heath spent the next few weeks raiding British supply transports and generally harassing the enemy in northern New Jersey. After Washington's raids on Trenton and Princeton, Washington moved the main Continental Army back up to North Jersey, allowing Heath to move back into New York's Hudson Valley. As the Americans went on their New Jersey Forage War offensive in January, Washington directed Heath 
to launch an independent attack against New York, specifically Fort Independence, which the Americans had built just north of Fort Washington in what is today the Bronx. After expelling the Americans from New York, the British occupied Fort Independence as part of their defenses beyond the northern perimeter of New York City. Supporting General Heath in this attack were several other officers who would also prove less than impressive. General Benjamin Lincoln was a major general in the Massachusetts militia. He did not, at this time, hold a commission in the Continental Army. Lincoln was more of a politician than soldier. He had served in the militia since the French and Indian War, though he saw no combat then. His father was a wealthy colonist who had sat on the Governor's Council in Massachusetts. Lincoln had won local office for many years and, as a loyal patriot, had served in the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. He had done a reasonable job drilling militia and organizing supplies for the army, but had not really proven himself in battle. After the British had evacuated Boston in the spring of 1776 and the Continental Army moved to New York, Lincoln remained in Boston with General Artemis Ward. There, he received credit for driving the remainder of the British Navy out of Boston Harbor, although the Navy did not really put up much of a fight by that time. This was several months after the Army had already evacuated Boston. As things heated up in New York in late summer 1776, Massachusetts ordered Lincoln to take several thousand Massachusetts militiamen down to New York City. They never made it, though. First, there was a plan to invade British-occupied Long Island from Connecticut. But by the time they were ready to go, the British had already taken New York City. Next, the plan was to join Washington's forces north of New York, where they would soon fight the battles of Harlem Heights and White Plains. But by the time they were ready to move this way, the three-month enlistments of the soldiers of the Massachusetts militia had expired, and they demanded to return home. General Lincoln opted to return home with them. There, he formed a new army and returned with them to Connecticut. But by then, it was late December, and Washington was all the way down near Philadelphia. So Lincoln sat in Connecticut for a few weeks until Washington, emboldened by his success in New Jersey, ordered Lincoln to work with General Heath on the attack at Fort Independence. Joining Generals Heath and Lincoln was General David Wooster, who I think we last saw in episode 106, when he then botched the command in Canada and frustrated all the other officers around him. Wooster, you may recall, had been ticked off that he only received a commission as a brigadier general in the Continental Army, even though he was a major general in the Connecticut militia. At this point, he had returned home to Connecticut where he suspended active participation in the Continental Army in order to command the Connecticut militia. In January 1777, he decided to join the campaign against Fort Independence. General Samuel Parsons was also in Connecticut at the time and got involved in the attack as well. You may recall Parsons from way back in episode 59, Back then, he was a colonel who met Benedict Arnold on a road just after the battles of Lexington and Concord, where the two men discussed attacking Fort Ticonderoga. Colonel Parsons, at the time, 
set up the expedition led by Ethan Allen, who butted heads with Arnold before the two men took the fort together. I haven't mentioned Parsons much since then, but he played an active, if less than central, role in many of the events of the early war. He was a colonel in the Connecticut militia and participated in the Siege of Boston, as well as the fighting around New York. Congress appointed him to be a Continental Brigadier General in August 1776, in time to see action around New York. By January 1777, he was back in Connecticut trying to recruit new regiments for the Continental Army. When he heard that Heath was going to take back Fort Independence, he gathered up the men he had recruited thus far and joined himself to the mission. Fort Independence was not a particularly advanced structure. It had four earthen walls with a few small stone buildings inside. The Americans had built it in June 1776 as part of their defensive plan for New York. They had abandoned it without a fight when the British and Hessians moved into the area in October. The fort served as a Hessian outpost with a garrison of about 2,000 soldiers holding the fort. Some accounts say that part of the garrison included a few hundred members of Rogers Rangers, a regiment of Loyalist militia. Some of the details about the attack on the fort are a little sketchy. Most sources indicate that General Heath had about five to 6,000 men at his disposal and that he used about 3,500 of them for the assault on the fort. Heath divided his attack force into three divisions. General Lincoln led a column from Tarrytown down along the Hudson River to attack the fort from the northwest. At the same time, Generals Wooster and Parsons moved from New Rochelle toward the fort, attacking it from the east. A third column moved south from the center between the other two columns. General Heath moved with this column along with New York Militia General John Moran Scott. The plan was for each of the three columns to arrive at Fort Independence from a different direction at the same time. They left on the night of January 17th, planning to attack the fort the following morning. The initial assault carried out the plans with reasonable accuracy and surprised the defenders. The attackers engaged in a firefight with some of the outposts, warning the main fort of the coming attack. The Americans overran multiple outposts at Valentine's Hill, Van Cortland's Fort, Williams Fort, and the Negro Fort. The American attackers captured a few dozen prisoners and inflicted some casualties, but most of the enemy fled back to the protection of the main fort. In a rather short time, the Americans had secured the area except for the main fort itself. Rumors from the initial success got back to General Washington saying that Heath had taken the fort. Washington reported this to Congress before it could be confirmed. When it turned out to be wrong, Washington was upset, not just by the failure, but by the fact that his incorrect report to Congress had made him look like an idiot. Even so, by afternoon, the Americans were closing in on Fort Independence itself, effectively surrounding it. General Heath sent a message to the fort commander saying that he had 20 minutes to surrender or suffer an attack. The Hessian commander had no inclination to give up without a fight and opened up on the attackers with the fort's artillery. 
According to some accounts, Heath did not even know the defending garrison had artillery, so attackers near the fort had to scatter and pull back out of range. Records for this battle are extremely sketchy, especially on the British side. The British wanted to play down an American offensive against New York, and also generally tended to downplay any actions primarily involving Hessian troops rather than regulars. I have yet even to find a definitive record of the name of the fort's commander. Circumstantial evidence points to Major Ludwig von Wurm, who would shortly take command of the famous Jaeger Corps and play a more significant role in the Philadelphia campaign later in the year. He would eventually rise to the rank of lieutenant general. The fact that von Wurm was stationed in the area and would receive promotion to lieutenant colonel just after the battle indicates that he may have been the commander. But I'm just not certain on this point whether he commanded Fort Independence at the time of the battle. The British records I have found treat the battle as a minor skirmish barely worth mentioning. The American records only refer to the German commander without actually naming him. Whoever the German commander was, he was determined to put up a stiff resistance. The Americans had only two small field cannon with them, with which they returned fire. An artillery duel lasted for the rest of the day, but Heath simply did not have enough firepower to threaten the destruction of the fort's defenses. Heath made several attempts to maneuver troops into a better position to take the fort, but this time the weather began to work against the Americans. The day after the initial attack, January 19th, Heath attempted to move more artillery across a frozen creek to cut off the enemy and get into a better position to fire on the fort. The temperature, though, had warmed overnight. When the troops began to move that morning, the ice was too thin to support the cannon. Heath had to call off the move and leave his forces where they were. When he could not position his cannon well against the fort, Heath used them instead to fire on a Hessian force across the Harlem River, where the Hessians had placed their own supporting artillery. The artillery duel there lasted for a couple of days, with neither side willing to come down from their hill and cross the river in the face of enemy fire. On January 23rd, Heath once again focused on the fort, building some face scenes to put a line of soldiers close enough to keep up an accurate fire on the fort. The move resulted in a few casualties, but really did not threaten the fort itself. The following day, the weather intervened again as a cold, torrential January rain soaked everyone in the area. It was especially miserable for the Americans, most of whom did not even have tents for shelter. The bulk of General Lincoln's forces pulled out of the immediate battlefield to find shelter in area houses. After many of the Americans pulled back, the Hessians went on the offensive. On January 25th, they deployed several detachments to take back the outposts where the Americans were now stationed. The surprised militia quickly fell back under continued skirmishing, but eventually counterattacked and forced most of the Hessians back into the fort. Heath had requested a large 24-pound cannon and a howitzer to attack the fort. Of course, 24 pounds means the size of the cannonball, not the cannon itself, which was thousands of pounds. This was a big cannon meant to take down fort walls. 
After three shots, though, the cannon's carriage broke. Also, the men who had brought the howitzer to the camp neglected to bring any ammunition for it. By January 29th, a severe snowstorm threatened to make conditions even worse. General Heath held a council of war with his top officers. They decided the fort was not worth the potential losses since there were no plans to use it as part of a larger offensive to take New York City back. With a major snowstorm on the way, and without shelter, the army would suffer greatly if it remained in the field. They voted to retreat and pulled back their forces to the north, out of the area. The various divisions pulled back to White Plains, New Rochelle, and Tarrytown, where the soldiers could take shelter against the weather. A week later, Heath deployed a smaller brigade under Colonel Enos to retake the outposts around Fort Independence. But this time, the Hessians were ready for them. Finally, a suspected smallpox outbreak in the area made Heath decide that continued attempts to take Fort Independence were just not worth it. He returned to Peekskill. General Lincoln removed his forces to New Jersey to join up with Washington near Morristown. The attack on Fort Independence did force General Howe to redeploy some of his regulars from North Jersey to New York. If the Americans were going to attempt an assault on New York, they would almost certainly do so from the north, where they could not be forced to cross the Hudson River in the face of the enemy. The failure to take the fort, though, ended any contemplation of further attacks. General Washington was disappointed by the poor attempt and wrote Heath an uncharacteristically critical letter after the action. He called Heath's behavior farcical and that they, meaning the British, would not fail in turning the laugh exceedingly on us. Heath's mostly militia army reinforced the common view by regular soldiers that militia could not fight professional soldiers, even with greater numbers. Now, militia in New Jersey were proving that wrong, but the New England militia under Heath's leadership trying to take a fort from a professional force did not seem to challenge that dim view of militia. Although Heath would remain a major general in the Continental Army for the rest of the war, Washington never again gave him a command that might involve going into battle. Shortly after this action, Heath returned to Boston. Following General Artemis Ward's retirement, Heath took command in Boston, which of course by this time the war had left long behind. Amazingly, General Lincoln, who seemed just as unimpressive as everyone else involved in the attack, received a commission in February directly to Major General in the Continental Army, the same rank he had held in the Massachusetts militia. An embittered General Wooster returned to Connecticut, and General Parsons began focusing on raids against Long Island to deny the British any forage from there. The failure to recapture Fort Independence meant that the British remained secure in their occupation of New York City. General Howe, as I said, used the winter to relax, attending many banquets and balls hosted by various officers. He also spent a good deal of time sitting at the gaming tables, gambling with his fellow officers. His mistress, Betsy Loring, openly stayed by his side at many of these public events. Aside from the top officers, though, New York City was becoming a pretty miserable place to live. 
the Great Fire of New York that I discussed back in episode 109 had left many residents without homes. British officers had taken over homes of patriots who had fled the city, but many loyalists from New Jersey and other places began to flood into the city looking for protection. Housing rentals more than quadrupled, and many residents spent the winter sleeping outdoors in improvised shelters. With martial law in place, the army quartered many of its soldiers in private homes, forcing people to provide rooms for them. The army did little to clean up the city following the fighting season. Trenches filled up with water, people dumped garbage in the streets, typhus, cholera, and other diseases took their toll on civilians and soldiers alike. Military discipline also remained lax. Soldiers roamed the streets without supervision, raping and murdering civilians, usually without consequences. Soldiers also regularly robbed civilians, breaking into homes or mugging people in the streets. One Hessian officer noted that he never went out unless he had at least two armed bodyguards with him for protection. Whatever money the soldiers plundered usually went for drink. Drunken armed soldiers with no respect for civilians became a common sight for New Yorkers. Now, General Washington still wanted to retake New York, but by this time he recognized that there had to be other priorities. The Americans would focus on annoying the British whenever they tried to deploy from the city, but did not seriously contemplate a direct attack. Next week, I will take a closer look at American prisoners of war held in New York City at this time. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the Battle of Princeton. It was pointed out to me that some of my explanation of the battle itself is now deemed inaccurate. I relied on some pretty standard texts for much of the battle description such as uh, the book Washington's Crossing by David Hackett Fisher. But since that book was published about 15 years ago, historians and researchers have found some evidence that the way we've been describing the battle for the last couple of centuries 
is inaccurate. The roles of General Mercer and Mifflin and the field positions of troops may have been different than what we were taught. These discoveries have been the result of archaeological research and revisiting some of the primary sources. So, if you're interested in a description of the battle based on this new research, I would point you toward a book I also recommended a few weeks ago, William Kidder's Ten Crucial Days. Uh, thanks to Patreon supporter Roger Williams of tencrucialdays.org for pointing out this issue to me. Also, in an earlier episode a few weeks ago, I announced that I had my first advertising campaign. You may have noticed that you didn't hear any ads. The campaign got derailed at the last minute, and it's still not clear whether it will ever actually happen. So the good news, I guess, for you listeners is that the podcast is still ad-free for now. Anyway, today we looked at the attack on Fort Independence. This is not a well-remembered battle, since it did not involve any memorable leaders, despite the fact that I counted at least five current or soon-to-be Continental generals involved in the action. Generals Heath, Lincoln, Wooster, Poor, and Parsons. We sometimes forget that there were 29 major generals and 64 brigadier generals who served in the Continental Army during the war, as well as probably, I'm guessing, over 100 at least militia generals. Most of them are not household names anymore. Some of them simply didn't live up to expectations. Even some who did perform some amazing services have generally been forgotten over the course of time. The attack on Fort Independence was a loss since the Continentals failed to capture the fort despite their larger numbers. As a result, the mission did not reflect well on anyone, at least on the American side. The Hessian leader who held off the Americans deserves credit, although as I mentioned, the British tended to downplay most Hessian actions, especially if regulars were not involved in the fight. One of the American leaders involved, Benjamin Lincoln, is the one who would go on to have the most important role later in the war. I mentioned that shortly after this battle, he received a commission to Major General in the Continental Army. He's the only American other than the original four Major Generals to go straight to that rank. Of all the generals involved in this action, Lincoln goes on to play the most important role in the later war and early republic. Unfortunately, his leadership, even in these later actions, left something to be desired. He was in command for the largest continental loss of the war at Charleston in 1780. And in case you're wondering, I'll mention that Benjamin Lincoln is not an ancestor of Abraham Lincoln. Because of Benjamin Lincoln's significance in the war and the early years of the Republic, you may want to read more about him. So this week, my recommendation is a biography of Benjamin Lincoln called Benjamin Lincoln and the American Revolution by David B. Mattern. As I said, this is a biography of the general's life from him growing up in Massachusetts through the war and later serving as Secretary of War and Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts. While in that role, he helped to crush Shays' Rebellion uh, sometime after the war. The book was first published in 1998 and is just over 200 pages, not counting some extensive notes and index. I found the book to be a pretty good read. The author, David Mattern, was a professor at the University of Virginia 
where he also worked on editing the papers of James Madison. He recently retired. If you want to know more about Benjamin Lincoln, Madden's biography is a good place to start. For my online recommendation, I want to recommend the memoirs of Major General William Heath, another general, of course, involved in this action. The memoirs were written by the general himself and covers his war years. It's a great account of the war from the perspective of this man. It was first published in 1798, although the version that's available online is one published in 1901 and also includes a separate account of the Battle of Bunker Hill. The book is, of course, in the public domain and is available online as a free ebook. You can, of course, do a search on archive.org to find the book yourself. I have also posted a link directly to a copy of the book, which you can get on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>